Bishop Arches, we want you to come and minister. Take your time. Feed us. Minister to us. We want to be better leaders. I present to you Arthur Hodges III. Come and take your liberty. Thank you, Brother Wyatt. Thank you, everybody. And uh, wow, this is a great looking group here. You look good, and you're good looking. It's nice when you can have it both ways, isn't it? Amen. But uh, we're delighted to be with you. I'm really uh, delighted about the invitation. I do a lot of different meetings, but uh, I I do love doing meetings of this nature. Uh, We were dealing with leadership and church growth and just basically growing people. We're growing together, and I love that. I enjoy that. Uh, I give honor to your uh, district superintendent, Brother Ramsey, and uh, what a great man of God and what a great job. He's doing a man for such a time as this in the growth and, and transition of this district, as we've heard already a little bit about tonight, and your secretary, Brother Evanson, and of course, Brother Wyatt, that we really are growing to, getting to know and growing to love, and uh, I, I, I love what I just heard about him sending out text messages, following up on that, and <clears throat> I was reading, in fact, I'm reading, I was reading on the airplane coming out here, a book called Talk Like Ted. And uh, in the book, Talk Like Ted, it's talking about one of the primary components is passion. And it starts describing what passion's all about. And what I heard being described about by the Wyatt, that's the, that's the evidence or the fruit of a passion. That there's something inside that's driving a man. There's a passion. There's a vision. I love that. And this New Jersey, let's see, what's our new name? North Central Jersey. UPCI, this new north, hey, you're a new district now. Think about it. You go back to the drawing board. It all starts over. That sometimes is a good thing. Amen. And uh, so this brand new district that you have is poised strategically to reach a very important segment of the United States of America. And this meeting here is part of that. This meeting here is a coming together and a bringing together and I'm excited to be to be part of that with you and part of this great district and your great effort. Amen. Also with your NAM uh, secretary, Brother White, uh, commend you and all of the district board. I know you all have to sign off on meetings like this and speakers like me and what have you. And so thank you for your, your approvals. And I'll mention Brother Naylor because uh, when I first became chairman of the Creative Planning Committee for the General Board, Brother Naylor was one of my first appointed committee members. And so we worked together the first few years, and then he resigned a few years ago for medical purposes, and I'm so glad that he's doing uh, so much better. But we certainly enjoyed working with Brother Naylor, getting to know him. He's a great, great, great man. Amen. (laughs) And kudos to your district youth president, Brother Ball, for setting the the, the benchmark and pushing that bar higher. And uh, and, uh, my son-in-law is currently our youth president of the SoCal District. And we had a pretty neat thing happen, a pretty cool thing happen, and that is that the ladies last year set a new record offering uh, for any you know fundraising event, giving event in the district. And the ladies' uh, Mother's Memorial Drive ends in, in our district. We have start and end time, so they don't overlap. And so they end, I think it's right after July 4, something like that, and then the Sheets for Christ, the youth drive starts, and then they go through 
uh, whatever it is, early September. And so we were all excited that the ladies just set the bar, you know, set the new high watermark for giving. And the youth came along and shattered what the ladies did. I thought, that is so great. So everybody just keeps pushing the bar a little bit higher. And, uh, and it's neat. We're, we're not in competition with one another, but we are complementing one another and challenging one another in that way. And that's an exciting, exciting thing. So good to see Brother Smith here. That was a pleasant surprise to see him here. And he's a great, great man. He is an iconic church planter, and that's been recognized because now he is overseeing our Metro Missions uh, uh, endeavor for the United Pentecostal Church International. Well, I, I do love the United Pentecostal Church. I'm going to be very, very transparent with you and very upfront with you. I'm not here to sell you anything. I don't have anything to sell you. don't have anything to make any money off of you or anything. So, you know, I'm just going to be as real as it gets today. And, and, and what you see is what you get. I love the United Pentecostal Church International. I'm just going to tell you, I love Now, I know it's not the only uh, uh, oneness, apostolic, truth-preaching and practicing uh, organization on earth. There are others. But it is the largest. It is the largest. And, and what's most important to me, not just to be the largest, it is the growingest. So whatever size it might be, the fact that it is the growingest. So the United Pentecost Church is is growing. It's doing well. And I'm excited to be a part of a group of ministers and, and saints and, and workers like that. The United Pentecostal Church is now in almost every nation on earth. There's just a handful of nations that we're not in. So we're in well over 200 nations. The United Pentecostal Church has more than 31,000 ministers worldwide. And we have more than 45,000 churches and preaching points. And I've been to many different nations and in some nations, we are the driving force for Christianity. And that's exciting. Amen. That's really, really exciting. I've been to some very uh, troubled parts of our world. I've been to some East African uh, nations that are very, very troubled. I might mention a little of that during this weekend. We'll see how it goes. Um, I've been to Pakistan several times. I've been numerous times to Pakistan. And you know what? There is a, in some of the most oppressed parts of our world, the gospel is growing the truth is growing. The United Pentecostal Church is growing in phenomenal ways. And persecution does not stamp this thing out. It's just like stomping on a campfire. It just scatters the sparks, and it starts more fires. But uh, we've got some incredible brothers and sisters, my friends, around the world that are absolutely giving their all for the gospel. Really, we don't really know what sacrifice is. I mean, we think we know, and we make sacrifices, but our sacrifice pales compared to what some of our brothers and sisters are doing on a daily basis, on a daily basis, living under great threat and great persecution. But I'm glad to be part of the United Pentecostal Church International. We formed the SoCal District, as was mentioned, uh, just a little over eight years ago. Our SoCal District is the largest populated district in the UPCI North America, 26 million people in our district. So pray for us. In, in that regard, we really are mission filled ourselves. People don't think of us as being a mission filled, but we really are because we have, thank God we are growing as well. We started with 76 churches. We are now approaching 100 churches. We're in the nineties right now. Uh, if you add all the daughter works and preaching points, it would be over a hundred, 
Uh, we're approaching 200 ministers, licensed ministers, right now. So God is God is blessing. Uh, my, my favorite book of the Bible, <clears throat> I love the whole Bible, but my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Acts. It's almost a joke at my home church. You know, if I say, turn to my favorite book of the Bible, everybody knows where to turn. Turn to the book of Acts. And my favorite chapter is chapter 2. And I'll just go and tell you, my favorite verse is verse 38. <laughs> because that answer is the answer to the most important question that could ever be asked. And that question is, what shall we do? That's the most important question you could ever ask. What shall I do? And Peter, standing up and speaking for all the apostles, said to repent and to be baptized in water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and that they should receive the gift, or they would receive, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I love that. That is, that is, my, that is what I, every day, when I think of 26 million souls in Southern California, the next thing I think of, of Acts, is Acts 2.38. And I say, how are we going to get Acts 2.38 to 26 million souls? It's not just getting Jesus to them, because there are others that are getting Jesus to them. But not everybody, in fact, most are not, getting Acts 2.38 to them. So they're introducing them to Jesus, and they're introducing the gospel, which is the death, burial, resurrection, but then they're not telling them how to become part of the gospel, how to avail themselves of the gospel. And Acts 2.38 tells us how to apply that gospel to our lives personally. So that's why I love it so much and praying that God will help us to open the doors to bring this gospel. But just a few verses after verse 38, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says that first church, that day of Pentecost church, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. The apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. Now let me make a statement. Apostolic doctrine and fellowship. You cannot keep one without the other. Let me say it again. Apostolic doctrine and fellowship, those were key components. The first two things mentioned that they continued in. Apostolic doctrine and fellowship. But my statement is this. You cannot keep one without the other. If you don't hold on to your apostolic doctrine, you're going to lose the apostolic fellowship. But the other side is equally true. If you don't work to maintain apostolic fellowship... You're going to lose your apostolic doctrine. Amen. Now, we are, we are unashamedly apostolic, oneness apostolics. We're unashamedly oneness apostolics. And, and we, we're thankful for that theology, and we defend that theology. We do, and rightly so. But let me tell you something. When we get as determined to defend our oneness in fellowship as we are to defend our oneness in doctrine, then we will reach the world with Acts 2.38. Amen. You say, well, that's your opinion. No, that's the words of Jesus Christ because here's what he did. When he prayed, Jesus said, Jesus said, I pray that they, Father, may be one as we are one. Okay. What was he saying? There's no way we can literally be one like Jesus Christ and the Father because they are one 
in, in, in nature, in personage. We can't be that. So he was talking about the relationship of mission and purpose, the alignment. That's what he was talking about. And he was saying we've got to align ourselves in the same way. So your mission is my mission, and my mission is your mission. And once we do, I can't do it without you, and you can't do it without me. And he said if they will become one as we are, he said, then the world will believe. Jesus said that. He said the world will believe their message when they become one like we are one. I'm saying thank God we've earnestly contended for the faith. Now let's earnestly contend for the fellowship. Let's maintain the fellowship. Praise God. Amen. Let me take it one step further. I'm in my intro comments, but I'm really already in my message here, okay? Even though the PowerPoint's not going yet. But uh, let, let me just take this one step further. I was sharing with Brother Wyatt. Let me go ahead and turn it on so I don't forget that I'm, what I'm here to do. There we go. That's what we're talking about, but I'm, I'm not quite even there yet. But, but uh, Brother Billy Cole, who recently passed, Brother Billy Cole, no doubt, saw more people receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost than any other human that has lived since the Holy Ghost was first poured out on the day of Pentecost. And that's due to a lot of reasons. One time one time I asked Brother Cole, uh, I don't know if I even asked or he just volunteered, but anyway, uh, the question was, you know, Brother Cole, how is it that you see so many receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost? And he said, it's easy. It's easy. He said, people think it has something to do with me. He said, it doesn't have anything to do with me. He said, I just hear and figure out where the Lord's pouring his spirit out, and I go there. <laughs> I show up. <laughs> I like that. Well, Brother Cole had invited me, and he's perhaps invited some of you, uh, to go with him to Ethiopia over several years. It never worked out. I always had a conflict. The time when he had that crusade was always a, there's like a permanent thing on my calendar. I couldn't uh, couldn't uh, get out of um, actually, it was the HMAC is what it was. And and so finally, one year, I just thought, you know what? If I don't do it, I'll never get to do it. And I never miss a meeting. I'm very faithful. I'm very, you know, diligent to be at meetings and what have you. But I thought, I the only way I'm going to need to go with Brother Cole is if I just miss this meeting. So I called and said, guys, I'm not going to make the meeting this year. And thank God that I did because it turned out to be Brother Cole's last year. He didn't know it. We didn't, nobody knew it. But if I had missed that year, I would have never gotten to go. And so got to be part of that experience. And by the way, the numbers they come home reporting from the Ethiopian crusade, many people dispute those numbers. And so I'm here to publicly tell you that they are incorrect numbers. The numbers that have been reported from Ethiopia are not the correct numbers. Because what happened is it is so phenomenal what God is doing. It's so unbelievable that when we conclude the crusade and the counts have been made, we all agree the numbers we're going to report when we go home are going to be half of what we actually counted. And we do that because the numbers are so unbelievable. And so when we report the half numbers, those numbers are unbelieved and they're disputed. But we know that we're very, very safe. We're very conservative. In fact, we know whatever we report, more than that actually occurred. So, for example, we came home from that last trip of Brother Cole's to Ethiopia and we came home and reported a crowd of 200,000. That's because the count was 400,000 people. Can't even imagine that. Can't even imagine that. We reported 100, uh, 
150,000, I'm sorry, we reported uh, 75,000 receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That's because the count was 150,000 receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I mean, it's just phenomenal things. But here's the thing I wanted to share with you. Brother Cole and Brother Tecla Merriam, I was privileged uh, on at least one occasion to preach a conference with Brother Tecla Merriam. It was in a little, I forget exactly where it was, but it was I think it might have been Iowa or something. It was not a large uh, district or area. So we spent some considerable time together, and I really tried to pick his brain, take advantage of that opportunity. But the Tecla Merriam told me the very same thing that Brother Cole told me when I asked him, and, and, and others have asked this question and gotten the same answer. And the question is, why is God doing such phenomenal things in Ethiopia on a level so far beyond anywhere else in the world? And, of course, I'm in America, and I want God to do it here in America. And so how can we, how can we realize that? And both Brother Tecla Merriam and Brother Cole said the same thing. They said there are two things that are unique about Ethiopia and only about Ethiopia, at least to this this degree. And they said the two things are the people's incredible respect and reverence for the ministry and the ministry's incredible unity, respect and unity. And when I was there, I experienced it. In that large crowd to get to the stage, they form men form a they lock arms and they they make a pass so you can get through the crowd or you couldn't get to the to the stage and then to come off the stage when you both going to and from but especially when you're coming off of that stage after the holy ghost has moved and and all of that and you're walking back through that crowd to get to your vehicle the whole time that you're walking your clothes are being pulled every which direction every part of your clothes are being pulled even my even your pants even right down by your shoe, there are people literally that are in the dirt. This is outside now. That are in the dirt, scrabbling to get through the crowd and grabbing your clothes. And the reason they're doing that is they believe that if they can touch even the clothing of the man of God, that they will receive their miracle. And you know what's amazing? They do. They do. They do. There was a woman that came to the... She wasn't even coming to the crusade. She was headed to market. She had a goat, and, and she was taking that goat to market. She had a huge distended stomach. She had an abscess. She was no doubt dying from that. She was in great pain. And on her way to market, someone coming to the crusade said, why don't you come with us? People are being healed there. Miracles are happening. And so she followed them with her goat. And she's one of those that grabbed... Apparently she grabbed my clothes because she was instantly healed and her abscess stomach went down to normal and she felt that healing touch and others around her visibly observed that happening. She came and insisted that I take her goat as a gift because I was, quote unquote, the man of God through which she received her healing. Now, I know I know better than anybody knows it had nothing to do with me whatsoever. But the fact of the matter is she truly was healed. You can't deny that. And so what was it? If it had nothing to do with me, then what did it have to do with? Well, we know it was God that did it. But what activated it was her faith. The fact that she believed God so much that a miracle could occur if she could but touch the man of God. 
that high degree of respect and honor for the ministry, God honors that. The Bible says, he who honors the prophet receives a prophet's reward. God honors that. And the ministry has that same respect and honor one for another. And so Brother Cole and Brother Teclamerium said, the reason why Ethiopians had these incredible, unbelievable numbers and miracles is because of respect and unity. I'm here to tell you in the Holy Ghost tonight that this brand new New Jersey district, amen, that you can have miracles, you can have growth, you can have properties and buildings and people and finances and whatever it is that right now you think is holding you back from your destiny and your promise, you can have that from God if we will highly respect and revere one another and unite and unify together. God will do that right here in our midst, Austin. Let's claim that promise. Thank you, God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. And the little bit that I've heard since I've been here, it sounds to me like that is beginning to happen. And it sounds like that you're, you're making some moves and turns, and it's moving in that direction. And that's a positive thing. Let me tell you, direction is always more important than position. Direction is the most important thing. I got some people that I've pastored for 20 years. They're kind of in the same position they were in 10 years ago. And I'm concerned about them. But I got some other people that are brand new. And they haven't even reached that position yet. But you know what? They're headed in the right direction. Direction is more important than position. By the way, direction is more important than speed, too. Hallelujah. You might be going faster, but are you going the right way? You might be growing faster, but are you growing the right way? Cancer grows fast, too. Okay. That's a whole other topic and lesson. But anyway, I'm just like flowing in the Holy Ghost right now. So I'm just like, okay, navigate these waters here. Fill this thing out. Uh, Here's my goal and my intent. Uh, I'm going to bring you a, a prepared lesson but I'm going to, as I'm doing it, and I'm already doing it right now, uh, being with you, I'm going to feel after the Spirit, and I'm going to kind of tailor tomorrow according to what I sense and feel tonight. And I know tomorrow we've scheduled even a time of question and answer, but hopefully if it works out, the time works out, everything works out, I'd like to maybe even have a little bit of question and answer here tonight because that will kind of help me tune in just a little bit sharper on maybe how I can best help you and, and, and maximize our, our time here. So... So that's my goal. That's my, that's my plan. So apostolic doctrine and fellowship. You can't keep one without the other. By the way, let me just say one more, one more thing on this topic here. Um, and I'm not meaning to offend anybody at all when I say this, but I just want to kind of get you thinking. Okay? I think it was Victor Hugo back in 1492 or something that said, a man's mind once stretched by a new idea never regains its original dimensions. So... So one thing I'm trying to do, I think on Facebook they call it poke somebody or something. But I'm trying to poke somebody here and just get you maybe out of your comfort zone and think about things maybe you haven't thought about. So I'm not trying to be offensive at all. But, but in the Bible, in the book of Acts, there's no such thing as an independent Pentecostal. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, the phrase independent Pentecostal is an oxymoron. 
Because you can't even have Pentecost by yourself. Even Jesus said, you want me to show up? You better gather together with some others. Then I'll appear in your midst. Okay? So Pentecost is all about coming together. It's all about coming together. Starting with the first Pentecost and the first outpouring in Acts 2. Maybe you didn't notice this, but in Acts 2, we quote verses sometimes and we know them. But maybe we don't fully even realize what we're saying when we quote it. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all, now look at this, look at word. Words are important. Words are important. And the Bible isn't just thrown together. They didn't just like, hey, let's go to a thesaurus and come up with some new words here. Every word is divinely inspired. So there's some real importance to the words here. It says they were with one accord in one place. It doesn't say they were in one accord in one place. It says they were with one accord in one place. You say, well, what's the significance of that? That just sounds like semantics to me. Well, it's not. It's not. Because if they were in one accord and in one place, all right, we all know we can't stay in one place together. We know that. You know, when a new believer, I love new believers. In fact, they're my favorite people in the world, by the way, those new believers. I'd rather pray with somebody new getting the Holy Ghost on the altar than anybody else. Sorry about that. But I love new believers. They're fresh. It's, like, it's like having a baby. You know, it's like everybody loves a baby. I mean, they haven't done anything wrong yet, you know. And... And new believers, sometimes they'll say, oh, I don't want to leave church. I'd just like to live here. Pastor, can I move on the property? We have some that have. We find out about it and say, hey, you can't sleep here. That's a new believer, right? I mean, when you love God, you love God's people, you love what's happened, you're like, I don't want to leave this. We know we got to leave. we got to turn the lights off. we got to go to our own various places. You come to a meeting like this. You have a conference in your district or a camp meeting or whatever, and God moves in unprecedented ways. You say, man, I have never felt it on this wise before. Oh, I just wish I could just stay here. And this, we, let's just all come together every Sunday like this. Well, that's in one place. You can't all stay in one place. we all got to go back to our own places. Okay, But if we approach one accord the same way, then we only come together when we come together. But what he's saying here is they were with one accord. That means it stayed with them. They came with one accord and they went home with one accord. Even though you can't stay in one place, you can stay in one accord. And I'm admonishing you to do that. So when we come together in one place, part of the end result we're desiring is let us also come into one accord. If you didn't come with one accord, let's leave with one accord. Praise God. Hallelujah. We're in one place here. Let's leave this one place with one accord. Praise God. Amen, amen. All right, here we go. So this conference is about leadership. So I'm going to key in on leadership, and uh, I'm going to give you a lesson. I'll probably give you one or two lessons at least maybe that are uh, along the line of what I teach. I'm an adjunct professor at ABI. And I also am the chancellor of uh, CSTI, Christian Service Training Institute. I'll mention a little bit about that in a moment. And this is actually a course that I have taught at ABI. 
and a course that I teach at CSTI, Christian Service Training Institute, which consists of nine lessons, a review, and a test. I'm not going to give you all nine lessons. I'll probably give you maybe two of them. And I'm not going to give you a review or a test, but the Lord will when you get home. So take good notes. Okay. All right. This lesson's in, well, I call this just Leadership 101. So here we go. Leadership 101. My introduction, and, and again, keep in mind this introduction is the introduction to the whole course, so that's why it's kind of worded the way that it is. Leadership is exercised in a vast number of ways. There are leaders in crime and business and in the military. There are leaders in government and politics. There are leaders in civic and community affairs. There are also leaders in the spiritual world, both angelic and demonic. And by the way, on that topic, we are readily open to understanding that there are demons and demonic spirits and adversaries and enemies and all of that. Certainly there are. But you know, at minimum, there's twice as many good angels and good spirits as there are bad ones. So if you're only seeing devils and you're not seeing angels, you need to go back to the optometrist and get some new glasses. Hello? Anyway, that's just a bonus. Now, God also has leadership in His church. And that can be very different from the leadership exercised in the rest of the world. Though this course, there you go, I'm teaching a course, all right, in this intro lesson, is entitled Ministerial Leadership, I want you to think of it also as Christian leadership, since it's possible that leadership may be spiritual and bad at the same time. As pointed out, the whole spiritual world and the world of evil influences definitely has its hierarchy of <clears throat> leadership. So let me tell you uh, what this course is about. Christian Service Training Institute, and I have some brochures here uh, that afterwards, if you're interested, you can get a brochure. Um, this is a brochure for individuals, and this is a brochure for pastors, or if your pastor's not here, you can pick one up to take to him. Uh, Christian Service Training Institute. <clears throat> is a four-year Bible college-style scope and sequence. covers 48 courses over four years, uh, from Genesis through Revelation. So it's a comprehensive Bible training program. Uh, it is one of only two endorsed ministry training programs in the UPCI. So CSTI, Christ Service Training Institute, is one of only two of those. Uh, we are not in competition with Bible colleges. We're supporting our Bible colleges. I teach at Bible colleges. But it is for people who would have liked to have gone to Bible college but didn't. Now they can't. And so it's, it's kind of, it, that's really kind of what it's designed for. Um, it's not designed to make preachers or missionaries or pastors or district superintendents or, or anything like that. Although many of our graduates are preachers and missionaries and evangelists and pastors and district superintendents. But that's not really what it's designed for. It's really designed for everybody in the church that wants to further their education in the Bible and further prepare themselves personally for service in the kingdom of God. Hence, it's called Christian Service Training Institute. I personally believe that the highest calling in the kingdom is the calling to servanthood. That's the highest calling. It's not to be a district superintendent. It's not to be a pastor. Those are noble. But the highest calling is servanthood. And again... I'm, it's not my opinion. I'm going to cite my key source, Jesus Christ, who said, He that would be chief among you, let him be your... Okay, so Jesus said it. So the high calling of 
servanthood. That's what CSTI is designed to be. CSTI is available in three ways. There's a campus in San Diego. Obviously, you're not going to go to the campus, and we're not soliciting that. In fact, we wouldn't even allow you to come to our campus in San Diego. But we, for the last, I think now about five years, we have been fully online distance learning. We just had uh, our first uh, whole class of North American missionary graduates uh, last year, one of whom, I think we had six or so uh, missionaries graduate, and one of whom came from, and I can't even remember the name of the country, Brother Smith, you might know the name or province, but it is the most northeastern part of, the, of North America, and it's way up there. The, the, next, the next step is, I think, uh, Iceland or something like that, <laughs> Greenland or something. It's this little tiny place, and, the, and, the, and they, it was a husband and wife, mission, North American missionaries there, and they both graduated. Only one could have, they wanted to go through the graduation ceremony, and they could only afford for one to go. So he flew all the way to San Diego in May or June, and when he left, the bay that they are on had 20-foot deep ice. That's how frozen in this place is. And these people graduated. Our missionaries in Thailand graduated within the last couple of years. Uh, the Philippines, all over, all over the world. But anyway, this is available uh, on an individual basis. Very reasonable. I think the online enrollment is $140 per trimester. That covers four courses. And, uh, and with that, you get uh, access to the online courses. Uh, film. Now we're filming in high def, by the way. We started last year filming high def. Uh, and that's available to you, as well as uh, student handouts, as well as the PowerPoints that the instructors are using. And uh, so that's available for $140 per trimester. You can pay as you go, um, and there's three trimesters in a year. So it's very reasonable. And then we're really excited. We are right now, this is our first year closing out, our first year of beta testing satellite campuses. And so we envision pastors that want to have their own Bible training program, their own, basically like a Bible college at your church, you can do it. We will provide you all of the videos. You can use them or not use them. If you want to teach the course, you can teach the course. Completely up to you. If you want someone else to teach it via video, that's available. It's provided to you, high-def video, so you can project it on a big screen like this. Uh, We also provide you all the teacher's notes. We provide you all the student handouts. We provide you all the PowerPoints. And so you've got a complete package deal and uh, and the price there's beta pricing right now. The pricing is in the brochure. Basically, the way it breaks down is if you have more than three students uh, to enroll from your church, you'd be better off financially to do it this way. Now there's an extra burden on you because you're the one administrating it. We're not administrating it. Online students that we're administrating that. So uh, pick up a brochure if you're interested in that. And if you have more questions, we can talk about that later. All right. Christian leadership, by absolute definition, must be leadership by Christ or leadership by one who is Christ's disciple. Therefore, this course must deal with the principles of leadership, which Jesus demonstrated and taught. However, it will also deal with the psychology of leadership in the natural sense, though sometimes only as a comparison. Now, let's talk about leadership. What is the definition of leadership? Sometimes to understand what something is, we need to first eliminate what it is not. All right? Because sometimes things are commonly thought to be true when it's not really true. And that's really the case of leadership. So let me say, first of all, leadership is not position. It's not position. But man, if I could just get to that level, that's not what leadership is. Leadership is not rank. Leadership is not a title. 
had a guy one time, and, and he's a good guy. And we did have a leadership position in the church that we needed to replace, needed to be filled. He knew that. He came and he said, Pastor, he said, if you would consider me for that leadership position, he said, you would be amazed at what I would do for God. And I said, you are one of the most honest men in this church. I completely believe you. I would be amazed. Because in telling me that, he basically was telling me he really didn't understand what leadership was. See, here's a little statement I like to use. Leadership is not so much appointed as it is recognized. So you never say, hey, give me that title and I will do X. You do X. And somebody might figure out a title to go with that, maybe. Okay? Leadership's about... Yeah, I, I, love, I love the Word of God. And, and, and in the Word of God, in, in, in the Old Testament, it talks about wisdom. We all know how important wisdom is. But what I love about God, I love God. I mean, the Bible says He's no respecter of persons. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. <coughs> he doesn't say, okay, I'm going to give you wisdom but not you. God doesn't do that. It's available to all of us equally. And, and in the Old Testament, here's what it says. It says there were men in Israel who saw the work that needed to be done, and they put forth their hand to do the work that needed to be done. And here's what it says. These were the wise men in Israel. What it's saying is, don't sit there, wait for God, please give me wisdom so I can do something. It's saying, go do something, and you'll wake up one day and say, hey, that was a good thing to do. That was pretty wise. That was pretty smart, wasn't it? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to pick up a piece of paper off the parking lot when you come to church on a Sunday morning. I had a guy call me one time at 2 a.m. 2 a.m. He worked a late shift. He said, Pastor, I'm so sorry to call you. I, I, I'm, I, I hate it if I woke you up, but I, I, this is an emergency. So I'm thinking, okay, emergency. That's kind of calls it. It better be coming in at 2 a.m. He said, I just got off work. I was just driving home. I drove by the church. Did you know all the lights are left on in the church and the front door standing wide open? I said, no kidding. I said, so what did you do about it? He said, well, I called you. It doesn't take a rocket scientist, does it? To turn a light switch down and close the door? And then send me an email or tell me at church Sunday what you did. You know, I mean, come on now. <laughs> Leadership is not position. It's not rank. It's not title. So let me tell you what. Oh, I had another leader. I had a leader come by and he said, Pat, he was leading men's ministry. And he's a good man. Even good men sometimes lose their way. He said, Pastor, he said, I need your help. I said, I'm here to serve. He said, I need you to come to our next men's meeting. And he said, I need you to tell every one of those men that I'm the leader, line up behind me and follow. And I said, well, why would you need me to do that? He said, because nobody's doing anything I tell them to do. Well, he didn't realize it. He just resigned 
he admitted to me he's no longer the leader. He worked himself out of a job the, the wrong way. All right. So leadership, it's not position, it's not rank, it's not title. What is it? Leadership, pure and simple, at its most elemental understanding is influence. Leadership is influence. Now, every single one of us has influence. You may not think you do, but you do. You do. And by the way, I don't think this is going to come up on a slide, but by the way, there's two extreme kinds of influence. And everybody's influencing to some degree between these two extremes. All right? You are either someone's example or you are someone's excuse. Those are the two extremes, and everybody is somewhere between those two. All right. Now, I said already, leadership's not appointed so much as it's recognized. So, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking for a leader, there are positions. That we'll talk about positional leadership later, perhaps, that, that do need to be filled. We, I fill a position. I'm a district superintendent. It's not something I seek or desire or want. Or, but there are some necessary positions. Somebody's got to fill that, and so we do that. But, but you realize that... Because you've got the title is really not what makes you makes you the leader. But it's the fact that you have influence. And so when I'm looking for to fill a position, I'm looking for someone who is the example in that area. And I'm going to pick the example and say, hey, would you fill this position right now? Would you take on this title? Would you? Which is basically saying, will you take on this responsibility? <laughs> will you be the one accountable? That's really what you're telling them. Okay. By the way, when Jesus was handing out those talents, okay, those talents were not like, you know, I think it was Rush Limbaugh that used to say, talent on loan from God. I don't know if he still says that. I don't listen to him anymore. But, but uh, he wasn't talking about that kind of talent. Okay? He was talking about, like, money, responsibility. He's like a businessman saying, hey, I'm going away for a while. You take care of this part of the business for me. That's what he's saying, all right? He's talking about responsibility. So you say, hey, God, give me more talent. You know what you're asking for? <laughs> you're asking for more responsibility. That's what you're asking for. <clears throat> and we need people that will say, yeah, give me more responsibility. And I'll be diligent. And that's a leader. That's influence, okay? So I'm looking for people who are a good example. You need a purpose in your life. I will never be anybody's excuse. That's what I tell young people. Don't be anybody's. That's what I told my kids, growing up my kids. Don't be anybody's excuse. You be everybody's example. So leadership is influence. James Georges from Par Training Group said this, What is leadership? Remove for a moment the moral issues behind it, and there's only one definition. Leadership is the ability to obtain followers. We said in the very opening slide, there's both good leaders and bad leaders, right? Okay. The old Chinese proverb says, He who thinks he's leading but has no one following is only taking a walk. So it's a real good idea, leaders, every now and then pause and look behind you. See if anybody's following you. You know, some of you are just so fast and so good. You are so far out in front of everybody. That could be dangerous, too. You know, that scout, if he got too far in front of his army, they might mistake him for the enemy. And some have been mistaken for the enemy because they just got too far out in front. Of everybody else. Now, let's talk about two types of leadership. Again, these are two extremes. There's a position-oriented leader, 
and an influence or in a leader. All right. The position or in a leader drives his followers. The influence or in a leader leads his followers. Again, words are important. And Jesus used words and Jesus used stories. But he never said, I've called you to be ranchers. He said, I called you to be shepherds. He never said, I called you to be a cattle driver. He said, I called you to lead sheep. Big difference. Okay? It's position-oriented leadership versus influence-oriented leadership. The position leader induces fear. The influence leader inspires enthusiasm. The Scripture says, don't be lords over God's heritage. The position leader says, I. The influence leader says, we. The position leader says, go. The influence leader says, let's go. He's leading the charge. The position leader fixes the blame. The influence leader fixes the problem. Listen, anybody can fix the blame. We don't need people to fix the blame. We need people to fix the problem. Don't bring me a problem unless you've already thought of two or three solutions yourself. Around our church, they've kind of figured that out. And if you've got a good solution or two, I'll probably put you in charge of it. We were at church camp out one time. We do a once a year church camp out. And I bought a little dog for my kids. It was just a puppy, but it was a basset hound. If you know anything about basset hounds, they're really strong. I didn't know it, but we learned that they're really strong. And even though it was a little puppy, it was really strong. And so we had it tied outside our, our uh, RV. There were, we had tents and RVs, and, but we were in an RV. Next to us was a tent. And this particular tent was not from our group. Most everything else was in our group, but this one tent was not in our group. It was late at night. Had church around the campfire. Then everybody's socializing. Kids are playing. Well, kids are running back and forth. And this little puppy dog is tied outside. He's tied to this stake. And the stake also had a water pipe with a spigot on it. And he was tied around that. But he's just a little puppy, you know. Well, when the kids would run by, the little dog would run after the kids. And he'd run. And he'd hit the end of his run. You know, and he would like wait till they and here they'd come the other way and he'd run the other way. And well, he did that several times. And one of these times when he hit the end, he pulled that stake out of the ground and he snapped that water pipe. And it was and nobody knew it. I mean, he's just chasing after those kids out into the dark. And we got a geyser of water that's shooting up. But nobody knows it. We're all around the campfire until a few minutes went by and it flooded the tent of the people that weren't from our church group and they had been asleep in their tent and they now had a waterbed and they were not real happy campers. Well, we could not figure out how to turn that water off. Nobody could find the shutoff. Everybody's looking and trying. We're driving stakes in the ground and just trying to do anything to stop that water flow, you know, and trying to find the person that managed the camp. Couldn't find him. Finally, they found him way off on the other side of the camp. And he came up. He's about a, like, 19-year-old kid. He was like the night watchman or something, you know. And and so he said, got to shut this off. He said, well, well, who did this? How did this happen? We said, let's shut it off. No, we're not doing anything until I know who did this and who's responsible. As soon as that happened, I thought of my leadership lesson. 
I thought, now, here's the problem, Henry. We got a guy that wants to fix the blame rather than fix the problem, you know? I mean, can you imagine if a football team operated that way? Maybe yours does. Maybe ours does. I don't know. Maybe that's a bad analogy. But anyway, can, can you imagine if they fumbled the ball and said, all right, we're not doing it. One more thing till we figure out who fumbled this ball. No, you're just going to jump on it, cover it, pick it up, do whatever. You, we'll talk about in the locker room down the road. We'll fix it later. Okay? So don't try fixing the blame. Let's just fix the problem. All right? Okay. The position leader knows how it's done. The influence leader shows how it's done. The position leader depends on authority. Bless God, you're going to do it because I'm the boss. Bless God, you're going to do it because I'm the father. I'm in charge. I'm the authority. The influence leader depends on the goodwill. And by the way, you will not, especially in the 21st century, you will not pastor a church successfully based on position, authority, or leadership. Ain't going to happen, Charlie. Ain't going to happen. This is not going to happen. It's only the goodwill of the people. It's only willing submission. I can't make anybody do anything. The only power I have is the power of influence. And the measure of influence I have is the goodwill. It's like putting money in the bank. You put enough money, it's true in a marriage too. Hello? Some marriages are in trouble because their bank account is overdrawn. Overdrawn. Okay? Put that money in the bank. You might need to draw it out someday. Amen. It's called goodwill. Now, you may impress from a distance, but you're going to only influence up close. Okay, this slide's significant to me because Brother Haney there was our general superintendent, and he was preaching at general conference. And the next slide is the next morning, and he called me and said, Hey, Brother Hodges, meet me for breakfast. Whoa, me meet Brother Haney for breakfast? And to be honest, I don't remember what the meeting was about, but, but... that, that, that was impressive. It's one thing to know somebody in a pulpit, but it's a different thing to talk to them over a breakfast table, hear their heartbeat, and, you know, you're going you're gonna to truly influence people by getting close to people. Don't, don't tr- try to impress people. Impressing people really doesn't matter. Really doesn't matter. But work to be an influencer because true leadership success is measured by those closest to you. That's not my daughter. That's my wife on the right over there, by the way. I know I robbed the cradle. I wish she could hear that. That would be money in the bank. Goodwill. All right. You know, honestly, you realize, you know, what you think about me after this meeting doesn't really count. It's not really going to benefit my life at all. But what my family thinks about me when I get home, that's what matters the most. Let me tell you something. You've heard the age-old, you know, what comes first, ministry or family, okay? I'm going to turn your box upside down here, but hang with me. Ministry comes first. Let me tell you why ministry comes first. Let me tell you why. Because, number, number yeah, you're ahead of me already, but, but I'm, I'm not ready to get there yet. So let me take everybody on the journey. Let me tell you why ministry comes first. Because there's nothing more important in the world than your own personal salvation. When your boat's rocking and your world's rocking, I mean, I've lived for God for, thank you, Jesus, all of my life. 59 years, by the way. And, and, uh, and my world has rocked numerous times. 
and, and, and I still do this. I go back to basics. I go back to square one. And square one is I got to be saved. Square one is when I was a kid, I said no matter what happens in my life, one thing, God, you and me, we're going to be together for my whole lifetime. I will not leave this way. I made that decision as a kid, and thank God that has carried me through some turbulent times in my life. And that's where I'm still at today. When my world rocks, I go back to that basic, hey, i got to make heaven. That's number one. Nothing else matters like that. So number one is my salvation. Amen? And the Bible says, Romans 8, 28, we love that verse. I love that verse. It says, all things work together for the good. To them that love God, number one, that's working out your salvation. But it says, number two, are the called according to his purpose. So my salvation is number one. <clears throat> my calling's number two. You say, well, Brother Hodges, man, you're putting like the marriage third and the family third. Well, and he said it, you got to realize, all right, what is my first calling? What is my first ministry? My first order of ministry is to my family. So ministry comes first when you understand that your ministry starts in the home. How can we rule in the house of God if we're not ruling well at home? The Bible says that. Amen? Amen. So keep things in order. If you understand it that way, there should be no competition between ministry and marriage. Okay? Okay? So if a family member is saying, hey, Dad, you know, you're spending too much time somewhere else other than family, what they're saying is, is don't get your ministry out of proper priority here. Your number one ministry is to your family. It's to your marriage. It's to your children. And then by that example to others. Okay, you with us on that? All right. <clears throat> Noah, was he a success or a failure? How long did he preach? How long did it take him to get his church building completed? You talk about a building program. He proved just because you build it doesn't mean they'll come. But his family came. He saved eight souls. And there's nobody in here that says Moses, uh, Moses, said Noah failed. We all say, right? Noah succeeded. Saved his family. No matter what you do in this world, you better save your family. That ought to be your priority right there. Amen. No matter how big a church building you build or big programs you have or all the rest, you better save your family. Nothing else is going to matter like that. Saving your family. Praise God. There's a good spirit. I like this. I like this new New Jersey district. Now you can teach what you know, but you're going to reproduce what you are. Now that picture is significant to me. A lot of these pictures don't have any significance to you, but but they all have some significance. These are just random pictures. You know, they mean something. That is my. I have three grand sons, three grandchildren. That's my eldest. He's now seven. That's when he was like two. <clears throat> this was at the end. This was Christmas. Every Christmas we do a big production at our church. And I had preached at the end of this production from that stand. My Bible was still on the stand. I notice. And 
at the end we're in the altar and they were all done and we're just talking and on his own that two-year-old got up on the platform and on the stage we'd actually built a stage on our platform and he got the microphone and he got my bible and he got in the mic he couldn't even talk but he well he thinks he can talk man we couldn't understand him he was going to it, man. He just started preaching, and he's turning pages on the Bible, and it got people's attention. People started gathering around. They came. They started egging him on, and uh, so that's why that, that has significance to be. But, but it illustrates this point that, that you can teach what you know, but you're going to reproduce what you are, what you are. You know, that's another reason why your ministry, uh, why your ministry starts with family, because they keep it real. You can fake people out in an audience. You can't fake out the ones that live in your home. Amen. It keeps it real. It keeps ministry real. Praise God. <clears throat> There's no success without a successor. Someone says, hey, pastor, I'm ready to move on. Okay, who's the successor? There's no success Without a successor. That's the little guy again. Right there. I was preaching at a church in, in Texas. Actually, it's my father-in-law's church. My father-in-law was the Texas uh, Spanish ministry superintendent. And this was his church in Tyler, in uh, Athens, Texas. And I was praying. And on his own, that little guy came up. And he just saw me praying. And he just started, started praying. And I love that. I love that. I like to see little children involved in the kingdom of God. Learning the right things, you know. Sometimes they imitate us. Sometimes our little kids will imitate the way we rejoice or dance before the Lord or, you know, shout or clap or jump. And some people say, oh, they ought not do Well, you know what? If they're going to imitate something, I'd rather imitate the things of God and the kingdom of God than imitate stuff the world's doing. Amen. Praise God. Leadership is both something you are and it's something you do. Emerson said, what lies behind you? And what lies before you pales when compared to what lies within you. Edwin Markham said this, We are blind until we see that in the human plan, nothing is worth the making if it does not make the man. Why build these cities glorious if man unbuilded goes? In vain we build the world unless the builder also grows. You know, I led the church growth, uh, new church growth ministry of the UPCI for about 10 years. And for probably, uh, I don't know, five or six or seven of those years, probably five or six years, I attended every meeting in the United States that I could possibly attend that had anything to do with church growth, leadership, read every book I could read, met every author I could meet, went to most of their churches and places where they worked and ministered or led or whatever, had lunch with most of them, just trying to find, you know, I've been solid in our doctrine and our truth, and and we, we can't... That's the engine. I'm not going to abandon that at all. But I'm saying, okay, you know, what are some other things that won't violate our doctrine, our faith, our way of doing things, but maybe you can learn to do some things better, just methods of, of doing things. And so that was my quest to learn because others are growing without this doctrine and this truth and this engine. And, and so, you know, do they have something we could, we could add? That was my quest. Five or six years of that. And the Lord just kind of stopped me in my tracks one day. And here's what he said to me in prayer. He spoke to my heart directly. Here's what he said. He said, Art Hodges, I have not called you to grow a church. And I was just stunned. I thought, oh my. Have I just wasted, you know, years and time and money and all the rest, you know, effort. 
I thought that's what we're called to do is to grow a church. But he said, I've not called you to grow a church. He said, I've called you to grow people. And if you'll grow people, they'll grow a church. Wow. Wow. Shifted my whole focus. My whole focus. If we get into this tomorrow, I'll, I'll elaborate on this a little bit more. So it, 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 you know, rather than focus on, okay, you know, the size of my church or size of my building or size of my city or size of my state or anything like that, forget about size. Why don't you start focusing on the individual? Grow people. In fact, our theme for our local church this year is the word revive. And we took the I in the middle of revive and we made it the number one. So it's revive, but the I is an actual number one. And the whole concept behind it is we're looking for a revival this year, a revival of ones. And it starts with this one. So it's like revive me. It's like the old song. It's not my brother or my sister, but it's me, O Lord, <laughs> standing in the need of prayer. You know, revive me. It starts with me. And, and, and focus on those, those individuals. And that's how, you, that's how you grow a church. I've since come up with more on that, of course, and more elaboration. And come to think of it, uh, there's nothing in the Bible that tells any of us to grow a church. Actually, the Lord said he would grow the church. <laughs> he, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. So if we just do what we're supposed to do, and he'll build, he'll build a church. Amen. Jack Parr said, looking back, my life seems to be one long obstacle course with me as the chief obstacle. He was a humorist, but he had a little bite in some of his humor there. And Zig Ziglar, one of my favorites of all time, he said, you got to be before you can do. And you got to do before you can have. Again, leadership is both something you are and something you do. <clears throat> Vince Lombardi, the famed coach of the Green Bay Packers, said this, the way you win shows a lot of your character. The way you lose shows... All of your character. <clears throat> My little grandsons, the two oldest, are involved in junior Bible quizzing. And Bible quizzing is one of the greatest programs we have in the UPCI. It's awesome. Awesome. They're seven and six. They're memorizing all the material. It's just so awesome. And, uh, and they just lost their first... Uh, well, no, it wasn't their first because they didn't win the first tournament. They came in second. And then the next tournament, they came in first. But their third tournament, which was the, uh, what do they call it, extravaganza, they got eliminated their first two quizzes. And they're just devastated. He's only seven and six, but I'm already teaching him this stuff. I said, you know Vince Lombardi, a great football coach? (laughs) He said, when you win, it shows a lot of your character. You've been very gracious in your wins. But he said, when you lose, it shows all your character. And sometimes you learn more by losing than you do by winning. You learn sometimes more by failing than you do by succeeding. So it's not all bad. You learn some less. So what can we learn from this? I'm trying to direct these little minds at this young age, you know, to kind of start thinking in the right way. Amen. John Maxwell said, everything, everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything. This meeting is so important. Thank you, Brother Wyatt. Thank you. North American Missions, thank you, District, for having a meeting like this. Leadership is vitally, vitally important. And every one of you in this room are leaders in various aspects, and everything rises and falls on leadership. 
Rick Warren said, if you want to know the temperature of your organization, put a thermometer in the leader's mouth. And a number of years ago, when I was the church growth coordinator at UPCI, we were at a meeting at headquarters in St. Louis, and we were going to lunch somewhere, and I was riding with one of our top leaders at the time. And so we're driving, and he says, Brother Hodges says, you're the church growth guy. You're out there learning all this stuff, you know. He said, what's the number one key to church growth? And I'm not sure anybody ever asked me the question before or like that. But amazing, without hesitation, it just came right to me instantly. I said, the number one key to church growth is the attitude of the leader. That's number one. If we have a chance, we're going to talk about attitude and, and, and do a session on that. So so important. Leadership is both something you are and something you do. The president of Hyatt Hotel said this, if there's anything I've learned in my 27 years in the service industry, it's this. 99% of all employees want to do a good job. How they perform is simply a reflection of the one for whom they work. Now let me ask you a question. Who do you work for? Who do you work for? You need to be working for the Lord. The Bible says, And all that your hands find to do, do it with all your heart as unto the Lord. Amen. That's not just talking about your church work. That's talking about your schoolwork. That's talking about your job. That's talking about your relationships. It's talking about everything. Everything your hands find to do. Whatever it is you do in life, do with all your heart. Do your best. Give it your best. And do it as unto the Lord. You know, sometimes people feel like, man, I got a horrible boss. Why couldn't I get a godly Christian boss? Well, what if Jesus Christ himself was your boss? Think about that. Why don't you start pretending Jesus Christ is your boss? What might happen? Maybe we don't know what we're saying sometimes. Maybe we don't know what we're asking for sometimes. But that's what the Scripture says. It says we need to do everything as unto the Lord. Our churches need to be the best church in the city. That's right. They need to be the best. May not be the biggest, may not be the newest, may not have the most stuff, but we need to be the best, the very best we can be anyway. We need to be making that presentation. We need to do it with excellence because he's excellent. Amen. We don't want to tarnish his reputation. We want to be an example, not an excuse. Amen. Praise God. Give it our very, very best. Well, there it is, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord, not as unto men. Bruce Larson wrote a book called Wind and Fire. And he noted three significant facts about the sandhill cranes. These are large birds that fly great, great distances across continents. And they have these three remarkable qualities. Number one, they rotate leadership. No one bird stays out in front all the time. There is such a thing as burnout. There really is. And it even can impact 
the work of God and the kingdom of God and the church. And so we need to be we need to be aware of that <clears throat> sense of that. I, I'm one that has a problem with that because and, and most I think probably motivated driven people do. We just don't know quit or stop or hardly even pause, you know. Uh, but but we do we do need to consider that. I think the scripture puts it this way that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, and the Greek actually says fragile, these very fragile, delicate, you know, vessels. And they can only take so much. Three years ago, three years ago, um, I was speaking at the uh, Colorado Men's Conference high up in the Rockies. I think our elevation was over 9,000 feet. And you could really feel that. When I flew home to San Diego, we're at sea level. And I felt like I was still in the Rockies. I thought, wow, this is weird. You know, does this stuff linger with you or something? And it lingered all day and the next day. And I thought, wow, do I have altitude sickness? I don't even know what I'm talking about. I, I've heard that term before. I have no idea even what it means. But I'm just trying to, you know, connect dots here. Like, it feels like I'm still at 9,000 feet. It, the air is thin. I can't breathe. And my wife and I went for a walk. And we got about a block and a half, and I felt like I'd just run a marathon. I sat down on a bus bench, and she came back and said, What's wrong with you? I said, I don't know, but I'm thinking maybe something is wrong with me. The only symptom in the world I had was that, that I just felt like i just come from those Rocky Mountains in Denver. So, again, I'm thinking somehow it's a lingering effect or something. She said, I'm going to call the doctor. I said, you know, that might be a good idea because I had no other, no pains, no nothing, but I just, like, man, I can't breathe. Went to the doctor. He immediately, after checking me, admitted me to the hospital, and the next day I went into an emergency open-heart surgery. He discovered that my main artery was 100% blocked. He discovered that my number two artery was 90 to 95% blocked. He discovered that my number three artery was 90 to 95% blocked. And I said, Doc, I'm laying on the table, you know. <laughs> I said, Doc, how am I even living and functioning? He said, it's a miracle. He, he said, your body has adapted remarkably, but it's run out of adaptations. That's why you can't breathe. Your heart's just given all it can give. My family wasn't even in town. My wife is there. The rest of my family is all out of town. She called him and said, if you want to see Dad before he goes into open-heart surgery, you better get here within a couple hours. We're up in L.A. We're in San Diego. And uh, all this happened Easter weekend. I said, Doc, can you, like, medicate me, and I'll be back first thing Monday morning. <laughs> I said, you don't understand. This is like our biggest Sunday of the year. We plan for most of the year for this Sunday. I play a pretty key role in this. My staff doesn't even know I'm in the hospital. This is Friday. Good Friday. I don't know why they call it Good Friday. It wasn't very good. It wasn't good for Jesus or me, amen. Now there's those oxymorons again. But He said, well, do you want to see another Easter? I said, well, I think I'd prefer to. He said, then you better have this surgery. I said, just medicate me, Doc. Could you do that? He said, maybe. I said, okay, let's do it. I said, now, he said, it's going to be a lot of medication. 
I said, okay, can I function? He said, maybe. I said, well, that won't work. So if I go on the platform and they think I'm drunk or high or something, that's worse than not being there. I won't see another Easter Sunday for another reason, you know. So I said, okay, well, there's no guarantees. Let's and so we did this thing. So I had a, they ended up doing a quadruple. They did four bypasses around my heart. Now, I learned some lessons that. I, maybe this is why God had me go through it, maybe because I'm so hard-headed. I want to be honest and truthful, and this is probably just for a few people in the room that need this, but I honestly did not believe in stress. Okay, I've been to school. I've been to college. I've, I've taken psychology, all of that. I, I, I can answer all the right questions, but I really didn't personally believe in stress. I thought that was a cop-out. That's the excuse people use when they don't want to do what they ought to do or they're capable of doing. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. It's a driven person. And I learned through that experience. Now, some of you already know there is stress, but some of you probably maybe are where I was. And you're thinking, ah, that's a cop-out. That's, that's the excuse weak people use. I'm just being honest with you, okay? Man, I learned there's something called stress. Because when my body was traumatized through this surgery... I didn't get over it in a day or two or even a week or two or even a month or two. But it took me several months. That was foreign to me. I have never, I've never spent the night in a hospital before. For me, I've been there visiting many other people, but not for me as a patient. That was all new territory. And the first time I came back to church, I'll never forget this. I purposefully waited till service started. Slipped in during worship. We've got a kind of side door that comes from our office area right up by the altar. I just kind of slipped in that door, sat on the front row, you know, came in when everybody's just worshiping, thinking most people wouldn't notice I was there, and they didn't. But there's a few that noticed, man, they're worshiping people. So, hey, pastor, good to see you back. Oh, hallelujah, you know. And that was all nice. One good brother, well-meaning brother, he came out and said, oh, pastor, good to see you back. Man, take all the time you need to recover. We miss you, but we just want you well. And they were all expressing that. that. That was nice. Then he said, and when you get to feeling better, and I got something really serious I got to talk to you about. <laughs> when he said that, my friends, it felt like somebody just punched me in the gut. I literally lost my breath. I, I can't breathe. Weird. Something happened that has never happened in my life. I experienced claustrophobia. That's another thing that I thought was just people, weird cop-outs. I don't get claustrophobia. I'm a certified scuba diver. I take my gear off underwater so I can wedge my body into a little cave and crevice so I can grab that lobster and that abalone. I I don't get claustrophobia. And here I'm in a big building, and it felt like the walls just closed in. I'm like, I'm like, I gotta get out of here. I, gotta, I have never experienced that in my life. And I experienced it. Anxiety. Panic. Gotta get out of here. And I did. And I jetted out of that door. I went to my office. I locked. I didn't want anybody even coming checking on me. Like, I don't want to be around anybody. Don't get near me. Don't get. And I called my wife. Come on, answer the phone. Get me out of here. She, she's driving. She has the keys. I can't walk home. And, and I finally got her attention. She said, What's. I said, We gotta get. We gotta go. Well, what is, I'll talk about it when I get home. I've never experienced that in my whole lifetime. Again, maybe that's part of why God took me through that, so I could empathize with people. Some people kind of live with that most of their life. And here, I didn't think it was even real. 
But here's what I learned. You know, first, I think it's First Thessalonians 5.23. It says we're three-part beings, right? Spirit, soul, and body. And all those three interplay with each other. They're closely related to each other. And when that, in my case, it was my body <laughs> that got taken down. And when my body got taken down, that affected my spirit. And that affected my soul. It's amazing. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. We've got to take care of the vessel. Dr. Archibald Hart is the, has been the head of the uh, psychology department at Fuller Theological University for, I think, over 40 years. The guy's written over 30 books. He's an incredible man. We've had him actually speak at a few of our ministers' functions in SoCal. And here's what he says. Here's what he says. He says, stress is the number one killer disease of the 21st century. He's got a book he wrote, and it's called Thrilled to Death. Thrilled to Death. He's talking about stress. And here's what he says. He says, when he started in psychology, like, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago, he said they, they 